Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray, president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Delighted to welcome you to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. Today, we're delighted to have with us Beth Macy, a three-time New York Times bestseller author. She is the author of Factory Man, True Vine, and Dope Sick three books that tell separate stories, but stories through which the challenges and issues and and prospects and hope of rural America are studied in different ways. This issue of Virginia Economic Review is all about the development of rural America and how not just Virginia, but other states around the country can position their rural regions for growth and for economic vitality. We're really excited to have with us someone who has studied so many of the issues that are going on in these areas. Beth, you have a unique perspective having written books that talk about some of the challenges facing rural Virginia, which are largely the same issues that are faced in the rest of rural America, as I mentioned. Tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you to telling these difficult stories. I'm from a little town in Ohio called Urbana, not very urban, despite the name of it. And I was the first person in my family to go to college. I went fully on financial aid. We were so poor, I got money left over at the end to buy my books with. Where did you go? I went to Bowling Green State University for undergrad, and that, more than anything, changed my life. I have more than paid those grants and scholarships I got back times 100, and it's shown me just how hard it is for people to get out of poverty. But I've always had a heart for outsiders and underdogs because I was definitely an outsider. I was definitely an underdog, and I consider myself sort of that last generation that was able, as a poor kid, to go to college and have it be totally paid, mostly with government grants. I worked like three jobs too, but mostly with grants. And so I'm just have always written from the point of view that we don't all start out at the same place. And when we are generous, when we help others come along behind us, we all prosper, profit. How early did you know that you wanted to be a writer? I loved English class. I mean, so that was like high school, but I had a paper route when I was a little girl. I was like the only girl that had a paper route in my little town. And I used to go around and I would spend a lot of time collecting, right? So think about all the skills you learn as a reporter and a writer and a negotiator, just like going out, talking to strangers, pulling out of them their stories. Many of them were lonely, older people. And so I I learned to talk to all kinds of people. I also learned that people weren't exactly as they presented. Everybody has a story if you dig deep enough. As economic development practitioners, we're drawn to, in particular, to one of the books that you published in 2014, Factory Man, which takes a look at the effects of globalization on the furniture industry in rural Virginia through the lens of the Bassett Furniture and related companies. One of the things I think is really special about this book is that the story that's told, while it is very unique to Bassett in that particular community, there are many themes in the book that I think relate to rural development and the challenges of shifts in manufacturing and so forth in the country as a whole over similar periods of time. Uh, The concept of a factory town, especially in the South, as we think about that, how one employer influenced that town, so many small towns that have been really dominated by a single, you know, major employer and then source of jobs. We saw that in Virginia with the furniture and textile industries that were, you know, once huge job creators, now quite small compared to what they used to be. When I think about that, I think about Danville and those big hulking facilities that are still there. You know, hoping to perhaps one day be revitalized with new industry. What do you think the future looks like for small towns like 
those places in Southern Virginia. It's pretty shocking when you just go back a few decades. They used to say Martinsville had the highest per capita number of millionaires in America. I mean, it was Virginia's economic powerhouse. It was our factory floor, if you will, right? And people used to say you could quit your job that morning and get another job by noon. One person told me they had three jobs in one day. That's how many, like there, one person said like, what we need is some unemployment around here. Right. And when I set out to write about what was happening in Martinsville, I didn't have a big agenda. I was still writing for the Roanoke Times. And all I knew was that Martinsville had had the highest unemployment rate in the state for at least 12 years. And I wanted to see what that looked like. Nobody had ever tallied up all the losses. Sure, every time a factory closed, they'd say, Stanley Furniture's going out, that's gonna put, the last story was like 600 and some people are gonna lose their jobs. Nobody said, that's on the heels of, and added them all up. And not just those jobs, but also where the people spent their money. They don't have money to spend, so that means the mom and pop diners, all the furniture stores, the little places where people spent their money went out of business too. And when you added them up on the ground, that looked like, I got this from the Martinsville-Henry County Economic Development Data Cruncher, 50% of the jobs had gone away. And among those people who were still working, most of them were having to drive outside of the county for work. So my job, when I first went down there with this question is what happens when half of your jobs go away? What's that look like on the ground? And so I went to a food pantry where people would line up two hours before the doors open. Disability rates had gone up 64.1% just since China joined the WTO in 01, just in Martinsville, Virginia. And food stamps had tripled and it was shocking. And as I was finishing up the reporting on that, the police were saying, you know, we've got drug crime is through the roof. People who were committing crimes were desperate and unemployed, but many of them were committing crimes because of their fear of being dope sick. So I didn't really get the connection between opioid use disorder and in what I was reporting about until much later. And, you know, by 2016, well, 2015, Case and Deaton, those Nobel winning economists, dropped their bombshell study showing that the, for the first time in America, life expectancy was going down. And the other big piece of news that sort of looped back to Martinsville was the fact that the CDC grouped all the opioid prescribing in the nation per capita, the number one place that was prescribed was Martinsville, Virginia. So you saw that people were seeking medication, bad players, doctors were over-prescribing medication. Once people got hooked, they would do anything to get their drugs because they didn't want to be dope sick. And so that, that started fueling a lot of the crime as well. And not just that, people selling the pills as a way to make money. One of the things you explore a little bit in, in Factory Man is how low-cost Asian imports kind of caught the furniture industry off guard. You go into some of the impacts that those imports had on industry, on workers, and the towns they called home. What really stood out to you as you started digging into some of those issues and the impact that that sort of trade situation had on places like Martinsville? So many things stood out. I first set out just to describe what it looked like, the aftermath story. And when I was doing some early reporting, I was interviewing a, a friend of mine, just on background, of, tell me everything you know about the furniture industry. And of course, he described how the textile plants started closing in the 90s and going to Mexico and Central America in the wake of NAFTA, and then the WTO in 01. And the, the furniture factories came next after that. What was interesting about Factory Man, and I found this in that first interview, 
was my friend who is in the furniture industry. He said, well, you know, there's somebody that didn't close their factory. Everybody else did this thing. He did something else. And not only that, he was successful. He sued China in a court of international trade to keep his factory going. It wasn't exactly a lawsuit. He petitioned the government to investigate whether the Chinese were cheating, albeit not abiding by the rules of the WTO that they said they would. And he found out that they were, in fact, cheating. He basically, you know, went against members of his family, back at Bassett Furniture, members of the industry. A lot of people were already so invested at that point in offshoring that they didn't want him to succeed because then they would have to pay higher duties for the imported goods that were coming in. And he's saying, but what about these families out here? What about those families that made our family rich? Don't we owe them something? So when you think about that as kind of a, a case study for, let's say at least partially the unintended effects of trade, and now we have trade as perhaps more front and center in the political debate than it's been in a long time. Can you just describe sort of what was the core thing that they were doing with respect to cheating? They were dumping. There's many definitions, but the main one is selling a product for less than you even use to pay for the goods to make the product. So the wood that went into the bedroom dressers and the beds, et cetera. And one of the things he did early on when he was trying to figure out if they were cheating, he found this really cheap dresser that was coming in from northeast China, almost to the border with North Korea, and he had his workers take it apart. Are there any lessons you think we can take from that for what might be happening now or what could happen in the near future? As I was writing the prologue of the book, the line came to me that nobody was minding the back room of this new global store. The WTO was supposed to, but it costs millions of dollars for an industry like the bedroom furniture industry in this case to hire lawyers to make sure that they investigate this charge of illegal dumping. You know, we just have to have a system in place because by the time a factory realizes that they're competing against people who are cheating, they're literally breaking the law that they signed on to, they're already in a bad financial spot. And such that only somebody like John Bassett with a huge chip on his shoulder because of the way he had been treated in his family and his industry, by the way, he was born a millionaire, would have the chutzpah and the money to do something like that, to prove his case. There's a moment early in the book where he goes to, to Dalian, China, to look, I forget the guy's name, but he's this giant factory owner and he's gonna build the biggest furniture, not just a factory, but like a complex of furniture factories. It's gonna be the biggest in the world. So he wanted to see it for himself and he saw just like piles and piles of wood and all these workers and it was really cold and he said, and I wanna get eyeball to eyeball with this man who's saying, I'm gonna be the largest furniture maker in the world. Now remember, his grandfather was the largest and he said, when that man looked him in the eye and said, you must close your factories and put your business entirely in my hands. For once in his life, he said nothing. And when he got back in the car with the driver, the translator and his son, Wyatt, he said, your grandfather would roll over in his grave. And he said, we're going to war. So he was super entertaining to write about and taught me a lot. Your latest book, Dope Sick, takes a look at the opioid epidemic in America, which, as you've noted earlier in our conversation, quite a correlation with many of these towns that have had dislocation of you know, their major employers due to trade and also due to automation. And it's a problem that's particularly acute in rural America, where often 
traded goods are kind of over-indexed in those communities where a lot of times a single sector or even a single employer is kind of the major driver. Can you talk a little bit about what you found in writing and researching DOPSIC and what impacts we may be seeing in folks' ability to both enter and stay in the workforce? And also, if you could kind of also expand, like, where you see this going? Because it seems like America is only now kind of starting to really wrap its head around the scope of the problem. I haven't followed as closely as you have, but it doesn't seem to me that it started getting better yet. The number of addicted people is still through the roof. We have 2.6 million Americans addicted. We have one in five of people who have a heroin or opioid addiction have access to the best treatment, what science says is the best treatment, which is buprenorphine or methadone. I call it MAT in the book for medication-assisted treatment. There's still a real scarcity of that, especially in rural communities where overdose death rates can be as much as 65% higher than the national average and in urban areas. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The first reason that it's worse in rural areas is because it's been happening longer there. The pharmaceutical companies literally targeted those rural areas because they bought the data that showed them which doctors in the country were prescribing competing opioids. They bought the data so they knew that Dr. John Smith in Martinsville or in Galax or in St. Charles, Virginia was already prescribing a lot because there were legitimate workplace injuries because of the factories and tough jobs, mining and whatnot. So they went to those doctors, and using false data, they claimed that their new drug, OxyContin, was safer than the competing opioids, and you should prescribe this. And they also funded trade groups, they call them astroturfing groups, mm-hmm. to say that these drugs are safer too. And what they did was they flipped the narrative that we had known for 100 years that opioids were addictive, only to be used in end-of-life, cancer, very severe pain post-surgery, to now Opioids are safe to use for moderate back pain, bronchitis pain, sore throat, TMJ. I mean, anything went. And they purposely targeted rural areas because the data showed them that that's where the biggest need was. And then the reps that they hired, an army of sales reps, were incentivized to get doctors to prescribe ever higher doses. They got bigger bonuses the higher the dose. When you flip all that on top of the job losses and areas that tend to be more conservative and where treatment isn't readily available and so you add that sort of cultural element of being tough. You know, we're from Appalachia, we're country people, we're tough. We should be able to kick this on our own. It's just a nightmare in these communities. What do you think is the answer and where's action sort of needed the most? That's a good question. So when I finished the book, I didn't want to write about this ever again. It was so depressing. (laughs) In the years since, I've been reporting on solutions. I have a piece coming out in Atlantic this fall about a kick-ass rural treatment provider from Appalachia who is now working in a small town. And she's figured out that the main place where people die is this kind of fundamental dissonance between treating the addicted person as a person worthy of medical care and treating them as a moral failure or a criminal. And this is in a small rural community. This could be replicated anywhere. In a county so small in Indiana that they didn't have money to fund a drug court, she talked to the judges in her courts into allowing her to set up a treatment center in the courthouse. So that forced the probation, the law enforcement, the judges, to talk to 
the social workers and the treatment providers and so they have to have jobs like they help them get jobs they have to have medicaid i don't think this would work in a non-medicaid expansion state so yay virginia and they have to pass all these drug tests four times a week one of them random so they never know when they're going to show up and for the first time they're breaking the cycle of people getting out of jail having a dirty drug screen, going back to jail. And I think it's something that could be replicated in small towns everywhere. Because drug courts are great. We have like 3,300 drug courts in America, but they're mostly in urban areas. A lot of rural areas can't even afford a drug court. Wow. So there may be some hope. There may be some hope. Stepping back for a second, you know, the theme of this issue of Virginia Economic Review, this is our third issue. The first was on tech. The second was on the future of manufacturing in America. This third one is all about the great American rural growth challenge and how Virginia hopes to position itself to be the first state in the country that positions each of its regions for growth. Maybe not the same level of growth, but for sustained growth. What do you think? I mean, we have certainly a number of great things that are happening in Virginia with broadband investment, with site development, with workforce training, a lot of different issues that are being tackled to sort of help position our rural regions and smaller metro areas for growth. Based on what you've seen and sort of reported in your books, I'd be curious if you have any thoughts about what the state and or localities and regions could do to help achieve that goal of positioning rural Virginia and in some ways thereby rural America for growth? I think we have got to get our arms around this opioid crisis. Pew Center survey said it's the number one, most Americans think it's the number one drug addiction issue facing America. And so I think we need some leadership on on this issue. Where I see successes happening are kind of on the ground. They're these rural innovators who are really taking this issue on for a variety of reasons. I just interviewed down in Mount Airy. He was retired DEA agent, Marine Corps sergeant, and law enforcement officer. He came out of retirement to head the opioid response in Surrey County, North Carolina, which has the highest rate of overdose in North Carolina. Now this is Mayberry. This is literally the town where Mayberry of Andy Griffith fame was based. And he's just saying, nobody's collaborating. The hospital doesn't know what the jail's doing, doesn't know what the town council's doing. There are little efforts being made, but none of it is being curated from above. And so he was hired to do that. And that's a really cool example, I think, of somebody that law enforcement respects because he's one of them really figuring out a way to get people to work together. But I think if we had more leadership on the state and regional level, these things would be more likely to come about. So essentially more effective addiction treatment would help us lead to a place where we'd have more people that are really able to be productively employed, and that would be a big contribution. It'd be huge. I had to ask you one more question before we wrap up. How long were you at the Roanoke Times? 25 years. That's what I I thought you were there a long time. So we were sitting here, I was just reflecting on, so you were at the Roanoke Times and you've become a three-time New York Times bestseller. We've got the legendary Doug Dowdy there, the sports writer, and the person who's not only, I think, the best, but the most productive editorial writer. Oh, my God. He's amazing. Is there something in the water there that's (laughs) producing all this sort of per capita talent uh, greater than maybe any other? Uh, Well, all three of my books grew out of reporting I initially did for the Roanoke Times. And I think we tend to think you have to live in a big city to be an, quote, author, right? Or only the good stories happen in the big cities. But all three of these stories began in rural places and they feature these heroic people who are fighting these 
amorphous negative forces, right, in order to help people. And so they're amazing. But because of the collapse of the newspaper industry, yeah. a lot of times in small metros like the Roanoke Times, we abandoned those outlying communities just when they needed us the most. So there's lots of room for me to run around intrepidly with my notebook and pen because there's so many stories that aren't being told. There's a, a miniseries coming up with Tom Hanks. Can you talk about that at all? I can talk a little bit about it. It was originally going to be an HBO four-hour mini, such that the company did with Olive Kittredge. It was a four-hour limited series is what it's called. It's now with film production company. Still Tom Hanks that's attached. Tom Hanks still wants to play John Bassett because who wouldn't? And screenwriter is a very well-regarded screenwriter. He's a Pulitzer winner. He wrote Doubt and Moonstruck. His name's John Patrick Shanley. It's still in development. They've hired a director, and I'm still pretty hopeful about it. Well, we can't wait to see it. I think the combination of your wonderful story with one of America's favorite actors is going to be really special. It's a wonderful story. We're so grateful that you made time to be with us today. We're hoping to pull off perhaps for Virginia, what John Bassett pulled off for his company. That'd be awesome. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.